welcome back to the Fastest Known Time podcast. I'm your host, Heather Anderson. Today's guest is Alyssa Amos Clark, who recently set the female self-supported FKT on Mount Whitney via the Mountaineers route from Lone Pine. This route is 33 and a half miles and over 10,000 feet of gain, and she completed it in just over 11 hours and 24 minutes. Thanks, Alyssa, for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's really an honor and just getting to talk with you. And I'm a huge FKT person and huge supporter. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So the first question I have is, why did you choose to do this particular route from Lone Pine and also via the Mountaineers route? Yeah, so there's kind of a number of things, I guess it's incorporating things that I've been working on. First of all, I have a real fascination with starting mountains from the absolute bottom. So when I'm driving up a road and it's taking me what I feel like is not cheating, but too far up the mountain for comfort, I always want to start at the bottom. There's kind of an aesthetic quality to it where I'm like, I want the whole mountain, not like three quarters of it. So I was definitely tempted by starting in what like Lone Pine, kind of the base of the mountain. Also, just the history of Badwater and that road, I felt that it it was really special. So I wanted to run that part and kind of feel the spirit and the power of the end of Badwater. And I also just like slightly longer stuff. So I was like, how can I make this route a little bit longer? And my strength is kind of the longer stuff. And so I thought it would just be more fun. I like being out there for longer. And it was a route that there wasn't a woman's record on. I was like, I want to put up a woman's time. And then why the Mountaineers route? So I did it in still really early season, I think for the trail. So the trail would have been quite icy, quite snowy. And I also have been working a lot on trying to combine multidisciplinary My background is trail running, but my husband's a big mountaineer. And so he has kind of subtly, but over time, pushed me in the direction of expanding my skill set. About a year ago, we were going to do Whitney, and I was terrified of going up the Mountaineers route because of the technical shoot, which really isn't that technical. And so we ended up doing it right at the beginning of April. And I was like, I really feel like I can do this alone. Like I feel confident. We'd actually practiced quite a lot of couloirs this year, and I've just kind of grown my mountain skills more. So it's not something we see women do very often. Like if you go to the base of the Mountaineers route, you almost never see a single woman. Like you don't see a lot of people who are solo, but you particularly don't see a solo woman. And one of the things that has really kind of jumping into this quickly, but like is really important to me is to show that women are capable of doing these technical mountain sports, doing these technical routes, and that we shouldn't feel as though we are excluded from the space or should be uncomfortable in this space. I have moved to the point in my career where I don't just want to do things. I want to have an impact with what I do. I want to open up spaces that felt previously unaccessible to women And that's something that I felt this route was kind of just the start of what I hope to build. And so it was just, it was super exciting to me and super appealing. Awesome. There's so much good in that answer. And I definitely want to unpack a little bit more of that later in the conversation. Yeah, I too share your fascination with starting at the bottom of a mountain. When I was in Hawaii a few years ago in Maui, I was like, I must climb Haleakala from the bottom. And I have done that route. (laughs) Yes, I wasn't able to go to the water just because of private property issues. But I started as close as I could get 
before dogs were going crazy. And then, okay, I'll go up the mountain. And (laughs) yeah, there's something extremely satisfying about knowing you've climbed the mountain. For those who aren't really very familiar with Mount Whitney or with this route, can you talk about like, to me in my head, there's basically three distinct portions or sections to this route. And I'd wonder if you just briefly describe those for our listeners so they can understand kind of the scope and the the variety that you actually did in order to achieve this record. Yeah. So if we're, if we talk about like the Lone Pine start, I had, I chunked it up in my head that way too, where I was kind of like, check, check, check. But I like to think of it so that there's a road section that's about like 11, 12 miles. Uh, It's 4,000 feet and it's kind of just a slow grind up to the base of the mountain. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's a decent amount of climbing over that mileage, but super not technical. I mean, it's road running. Then you get to the base and you have a hike. You do have one section that's called the ledges, which if you go slightly off route or you make a bad move, it could be consequential, but you have, I think it's like three miles of decent uphill, like hard hiking, because you are getting into 13-ish thousand feet and you go past some beautiful lakes and there's still a lot of snow or there still was a lot of snow when I was doing it after I kind of hit lower Boy Scout. And then the last bit is the technical part where you have to have or I think you should have an ice axe. And then I had pretty souped up like running crampons. So I use a Gravel crampon. So I wasn't using mountaineering boots and kind of normal crampons. It's like 30 to 40 degrees up. And then it kind of flattens a little bit. It gets a little rockier. And then you get to the top. You can either go around the mountain or you can do a fourth class, third, fourth class scramble straight to the top. I had done the three, four class scramble to the top before. And that's what I knew. And that's what I felt like I should do again. And then you have to come back down, which as all good mountain people know, you cannot let your guard down as you're coming down. So definitely, I think the parts that I was most nervous about the couloir, I I feel pretty comfortable in couloirs, but the scramble Last time I kind of hadn't made the best route decisions because you can kind of go more up a pretty steep snowfield or you can go more rock scrambly, but the rock scrambly is definitely more a fourth class. And so I had made kind of a poor choice the first time I did it back in April. And so this time I was definitely nervous of doing it completely alone. And also I happened to do it when not even another person was on the route the second time mm. when I was actually alone. So that made right. me a little bit more nervous. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think the fun part about when you do more of these things is that you learn how to, fo- I had been told before that exposure is just learning how to focus your mind mm. um, and be more careful. And I never really understood that. It's like you slow your mind down and you're just extra careful and you don't panic. And this time I really felt like I did have control over that. And I, again, didn't make the best route decisions. I was kind of annoyed at myself with that, but I was able to work through that bit of fear. So I was very relieved though, when I got to the bottom of the Mm. core, I was like, okay, now I can just go. Like now I can really, cause I had purposefully gone quite slowly of that part because I was like, you know what? At the end of the day, speed does not matter. Safety matters. So once I got down, I was like, okay, time to go. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the climbing adage, making it to the summit is optional, making it down is mandatory. There's definitely been a lot of summits I've done where 
I didn't even enjoy the summit because of the crux. And then I down climb, get past the crux. And then I could like have a break and be like, oh, it's so beautiful. And like, relax, you know, there's this, this pressure in your head where you have to reverse something. And especially if you didn't make great route choices and you're like, okay, I need to try to do that better on the way down or at least do exactly the same thing safely. Definitely is like ever present in the mind. Definitely. And it's, it was like probably 40 plus mile per hour winds up top. So I was like, all right, ready, go. (laughs) Get back down as quickly as possible. I hate being on exposed scrambles when the wind's just going, even if it's not really like threatening to throw you off. It's just, I don't know. There's something about it. It adds that extra element where it's like, okay, this really isn't changing anything except for how I feel. Right. Yeah. It's just that that level, like a little bit of that anxiety. And I totally get what you're saying too. It's like you have to learn that mindfulness, like to be able to just really call yourself into the present and not start freaking out. Yeah. So I'd like to know a little bit about your logistics, because I mean, obviously, like this is an extremely diverse route. And I know you didn't run out of Lone Pine with your crampons on and your ice axe in your hand. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you managed the variety that you encountered? Yeah. So I think, again, that's what's so fun about FKTs is the logistics part of things, too as I'm sure you've experienced many times, we went up the day before and I stashed. So I had, the other thing is the huge variation in temperature. So it's like 90 degrees. Yeah. So I, no, I did not want to be running with that. I also didn't want to be running with a puppy jacket. So (laughs) um, not necessary. I had a running vest and then like normal road slash trail shoes and like lighter weight clothing on the way up. I had stashed water and a couple snacks at like the halfway point of the road. I didn't hit that on the way up because I didn't really need it. But on the way back, I definitely needed the water because it was 90 degrees. So I live about six hours away from Whitney. So we did not have a ton of extra time to like hike up and stash things further up. So I ended up stashing my climbing pack, which was a super lightweight, like 20 liter pack, then which had my ice axe crampons. And I changed running shoes to a much more technical trail shoe. I was banking on minimalism. Like if someone was doing this that had not done it before, who was not going for a speed record, I did not have a lot of extra. I had one puppy jacket, one pair of pants, an emergency blanket, food and water. So in a helmet. (laughs) So I didn't have a ton of extras. And if something had happened, luckily it was a super warm day, but, and I I did have people around who could help me, but it would have, I would have been pretty cold, which, you know, that's always the risk reward with lightweight stuff or lightweight adventures. It's like, I'm not going to be comfortable if something goes wrong, but if I keep adding weight for safety, where's the line? So I put that pack on, changed the shoes and had that, I carried that from the portal to the top and I put on my micro spikes that's what i've been trying to think yeah, of spikes. micro yeah. spikes i was like they're not crampons and right, i right. feel like an idiot micro spikes i was like my husband's gonna kill me if <laughs> my micro spikes my tool my helmet and then my warmer layers it was so hot up until the top part that i didn't even really need that on at the base of the couloir and then i had running poles and i think it was just my poles that i left but i left that at the base of the cool bar because I didn't need them, went up, came back down, shoved everything in my pack. And then I dropped the pack off back where I had left my running vest and then later like came back and grabbed it. And then 
went down the mountain back in what I had come up in. So I know other people will stash further up. I could have had more places where I left stuff, but for the sake of the time constraints that we had, that's what we ended up doing. No, that makes perfect sense. I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit more about that balance between risk and safety, because I think that there's a lot of interest in doing summits fast. We're seeing more and more of that in the FKT scene. And especially coming from a trail running background, maybe your process and how you've learned to balance this, like going light and fast versus like knowing that you'll be safe enough. Yeah. So that's, you know, I think that's always the question as we do get more and more into lightweight. I think, first of all, I think it's riskier if you don't know the route. So Mm -hmm. I knew the route and I had experienced the route. I had an idea of what I was doing. If I'd done that, without having, first of all, I probably wouldn't have done it without like never seeing it. So I think it's experience in the route, having practice Mm -hmm. on it, knowing your outs, knowing where, knowing that like I did, I knew there was people up there. I knew a few people up there that I'd met the day before. I don't like to rely on other people because that's not great. I think like ethics of climbing mountains, you should be self-reliant. But I also knew that I wasn't going to be like alone in the mountains, that at the very least, there would be another human around. So I think knowing how busy your route is, I can't remember where I saw this, but it's essentially like there's always a line where you're bringing things for just in case, or if I'm hungry, or if I might get a little bit thirsty to make yourself feel safer. And it's always, it's like you have to kind of face the reality of like, okay, if I am like hungry for an hour, is that the worst thing that could happen? Mm-hmm. No, it's okay. Like, it's fine. So, okay, how much food do I really need to bring? Do I need to bring those three extra bars just in case? Like, eh, maybe not, because I will be okay if I'm hungry for an hour. I think there's certain things you should always carry. Like, I always carry a garment in reach with me, and I always carry a safety blanket to kind of stop the like immediate dangers of cold and being able to call for help. But I think I think you have to have enough experience to be making really conscious decisions. If you are not making a conscious decision, you probably should rethink what you're taking. If you're like, I know that if I get stuck out here, I'm going to be cold and hungry and I accept that risk and I accept not having other people help me in that position, then it's like, that's your choice. But if you're like, oh, if I don't bring this, someone else can bail me out or I'm just not going to take that because like, I don't want to carry it because it's too heavy, then maybe you should rethink what you're doing. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That idea of bringing the extra for the just in case in through hiking, we call it packing your fears. Like if you're afraid of being hungry, you will always have too much food. You always put it in your pack just in case because you're afraid. And I think being able to identify those fears and rationalize like, all right, how justified is this can really help like with your tendency and then and also give you clarity on like your choices and your selections for sure. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of it too, is that I spend a lot of time visualizing both like visualizing about my fears, if they are rational or irrational, and allowing the irrational ones to let go. And I think that it takes thinking about what can go wrong because we so often want to just think about what's going to go right. But if you plan and think about what's going wrong, you can erase a lot of those irrational fears. And then you can focus on mitigating the risk of the rational fears. I've had to do that. I'd set the record on the Pinhoti Trail. And I had to think through a lot of those 
of like, hmm, female alone in the woods of Alabama. Like, what can I do to mitigate those fears and how much of them are valid? So I think going through those thought processes is really important. Yeah, I definitely think that visualization and thinking through both the positive and the negative is really quite key. I think a lot of people focus only on training the body, but training the mind is very important. I was reading your report and you describe a really cool experience when you're running up the road with the stars and stuff. And I just thought that was really beautiful. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to share that with our listeners. Absolutely. So I was running up the road and it, I think there's always a moment when you do these kinds of things where you're like, why am I doing this? Or like, what? You know, I could be sleeping right now. It's 3.30 in the morning. I'm running on this road, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And it's like the road was kind of a buy-in to get to the part that was more challenging for me because like I can run road. And so I just wasn't as psyched as I thought I would be. Mm-hmm. And so I went, how can I change my mindset right now? And I decided, well, there's no cars on the road. Why don't I just turn my headlamp off? Like, why not? So I turned it off and I realized that I could run by the white paints. I was having so much fun just being in that moment and looking up at the stars. Because I mean, the stars in the desert, as I'm sure you know super well, are Mm -hmm. incredible. And I managed to see two shooting stars. And one of my students really loved shooting stars. And so it kind of felt like she was sending me, even though she was asleep, sending me kind of a good luck message. And so on those stars, I wished for the first one, I wished for safety for as many people who are taking on a challenge today. And the second one, I wished for one person in the world to be happier than they were the day before. And I think sometimes I do this a lot in my running when Like when I'm going through a more difficult patch is I try to look outward and I try to think of gratitude um, and trying to imagine someone having just a little bit better of a day. And so I think that really put me in such a happy mindset and I was really thankful and I ran the rest of the time until the sun came up with my lamp off. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, I think that that's wonderful. And I think that there is something super valuable about when you're struggling, especially when it's a challenge you have chosen about changing the mindset and taking yourself out of, of that and directing outward and, and utilizing gratitude. I think that's like super important to keep a focus and keep a proper mindset. Yeah, because we choose to get to be out there. I mean, I was thinking a lot about like I have a Ukrainian student whose family you know, escaped from Ukraine, but I can't imagine what so many of them are going through. I can't imagine her mental struggle every day, even though she's safely in the U.S. And so uh, that was kind of who my wish was going to. And we choose to put ourselves in these positions. This is such a gift. And if you go into it feeling like you have to, or, you know, you're trying to prove something, it doesn't really work. Learned that through a lot of trial and error. Yeah, I think that that's one of the nice things about FKTs and, and just doing hard things in general is the growth that happens along the way through that trial and error. <laughs> I'm curious if, since you've obviously, you're familiar with the route, you've done the route before, was what you anticipated to be the hardest or sketchiest part of the route in actuality what you found to be the hardest or sketchiest part of the route? That's a great question. I was most probably worried about the fourth class scramble. And because of my route choice on the way up, it did prove to be pretty sketchy. I also went slightly off on the ledges, which was pretty low, which I kind of wasn't expecting. So that was not necessarily anticipated. But like, unfortunately, 
wasn't my best choice of routes. And I, I got myself back on, but I was like, okay, that wasn't, you know, we got to be really aware that you're alone here and you need to be a little bit more on top of things. So I would say the crux probably was where I expected it to be. The way down was better than I thought. And I was pretty concerned about the way down. I chose a better route, but I would actually say I anticipated being able to really move on the downhill once I got through the couloir and there was so much snow and scree that I was more just disappointed that I wasn't moving faster rather than it being the most challenging. It was more mentally challenging because I thought I would just be able to fly and it was pretty slow. And I think when you overpromise yourself um, of an outcome, then sometimes that can feel a little bit defeating if it doesn't quite happen the way you expect. And if you're slower and you're like, yeah, I thought it was going to be so fast. Right. Totally. In your report, I feel like I read that you were actually surprised at your time. Like you were consistently getting to your waypoints a little faster than you anticipated. So what was your initial, like maybe your overall goal, maybe for reaching the summit and also reaching back to Lone Pine and then how that compared to what you did in actuality? I hoped I could do it around 12 hours, kind of basing off of how great the men are that have done the route. I mean, they're really good mountaineers and how, yes, I know the running part, but I did not know how long it would take me to move through the more mountaineering part. As far as I I ran a little bit faster, the Kuwar wasn't the fastest, but it wasn't too bad. And then I guess I wasn't as slow on the downhill as I felt. It's just, it was more feel than time. So when I looked at much, I was like, oh, actually, that's not that bad. And the lower part of the trail is really runnable for the last mile and a half. So I made up a lot of time that I felt I was losing. And then I'd seen in Natalie's report that he was cranking like 720s to 740s on the way down. And I was just like, I don't know if that's possible, but you get so excited because you're like, I'm pretty close to done. And it's net 4,000 feet downhill. I actually ended up being able to match that pretty closely. So I think that I came to realize, ah, it's, I think I can get sub 11. Well, I thought sub 11.45, then I thought sub 11.30 and ended up coming in 11.24 or something like that. But I I pushed hard on the road. And I think that's kind of the fun part about an FKT is that it's different from like a race. If you're in the lead and you feel pretty comfortable, it's like, yeah, you know, just you don't have to be pushing yourself. But when you're setting an FKT, it's like, I want to make it harder for the next person. And also, what's the best I can possibly do on this route? And so I think that pushed me to go as fast and as hard as I could on the downhill. I also really like to get as close to men's times as possible. So that is always a challenge for me as well. Or if I can surpass them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a race of one, but there's still another bar you can still compare to. You mentioned earlier the Pinhoti Trail. And so like, it's really fascinating to me that your previous FKT to this was, you know, the supported Pinhoti Trail, which is like a 300 plus mile long, you know, through hike, nothing technical, no mountaineering in Alabama or Georgia. And so then you come out and you set this like, you know, half mountaineering, half running FKT on Mount Whitney is a huge leap in style and in terrain. And so I'm curious about your journey from there from the supported Pinhoti, because I think you did that just last year. In to, November, yeah. yeah, to Mount Whitney. And as well as like your why, I mean, you talked a little bit about your why earlier, but kind of your why going from this to that. Yeah, now that you say it, it does sound absolutely bizarre. 
(laughs) (laughs) That is really funny. Yeah. So I've always loved technical mountains. I grew up in Vermont. It's just my favorite thing. So we lived in Italy for two years and I attempted Tour de Jean. And so actually last year I was training all geared towards Tour de Jean again, but I had a number of factors go wrong and didn't end up finishing it. But I had, and I had attempted Pinhoti self-supported. So we lived in Florida for five months because my husband's military. And so I knew the trail really well. I knew the people. And so when tour last year in September didn't go the way that I wanted to, I was like, I have all this fitness, you know, because tour is a 230 plus mile race. How do I use it? You know, a lot of the routes that are more mountainous are starting to get snowed in. They're not as accessible. And I've made a lot of, not mistakes, but I am now on this quest to finish things that I didn't finish before, or I feel like I knew I could do it. And so I like started reaching out to my friends at Pinhoti and said, Hey, you know, I really want to come back and I want to give this a shot. And I happen to have this kind of perfect window of time in my teaching job to fly back and do the Pinhoti over Thanksgiving. And so I went back and it wasn't necessarily like redemption. It was more just finishing something that I really felt that I could do. But at heart, I am a mountain runner. So like I did the URA 100 last year. And so Pinhoti is a weird blip, but it does build off having spent time in that area and also having run a lot of flat marathons. I do still have that kind of ability to move on flatter terrain for a really long period of time. So... I would say Whitney is definitely more my normal style and Hody was definitely more of the exception, but Whitney signifies kind of more the direction that I want to move in of combining that multidisciplinary work. And then this year, like I'm doing TDS and the Mont Blanc marathon and also Moab, which again is kind of like that weird flatter racing style, but I'm kind of trying to keep myself open. I'm only 29. So I'm kind of dabbling in what appeals to me. But I do think that Whitney's is definitely the style that most intrigues me and is most the direction that I want to go in. Makes sense. I saw that you called this Mount Whitney FKT your boldest FKT. And I was curious if you had planned to do more in that style, because it definitely seemed like you you enjoyed it. And perhaps that was something you intended. So it's good to hear that you have more potentially coming our way. I do. Yeah. I've been in conversation with a pretty big one in uh, Washington state. We'll say that. Nice. I wonder if you'd share your thoughts on why you did the route. You kind of mentioned a little bit earlier about like what you like to to demonstrate with your FKTs or your purpose. And so just like a little bit about your why and like what you want to share with others through this Mount Whitney FKT or through you know, you're running in general. I think when you start out running, you're kind of trying to find what you're doing with it. And it's become more and more clear to me what the reason is behind the path that I've taken. And I, I truly and firmly believe that women and female identifying people deserve to be in these places and deserve to be in spaces that have previously been really uncomfortable or felt unpenetrable to enter. And so with my running, with getting into more mountaineering spaces, I don't want it to be that like the girlfriend gets dragged up by her boyfriend who's doing the mountaineering thing or that there's male dominated parties, or it's weird to see a woman alone doing it by herself. 
I want that to be normal. I want women to be in these places and feel like they belong. And so I'm hoping as like women who FKT is doing to next year and starting this year champion and like build that community even more than it's being built. And I love what's being done. There's so much like you are truly an icon of that. And that's why I'm like so excited and like grateful to be talking to you. I mean, you really push that, that boundary. And mm-hmm. I hope like, seriously, I've read all your books, but <laughs> um, also I'm girl, like, but, but I think that continuing to lead by doing these records, but also by providing the community and the support and the belief in other people to occupy these spaces is going to make such a difference. And I no longer feel like I'm just running because cool, I get to run. I feel like it's something that I can say to the world, that I can encourage, that I can help others come into these places. And I think what's beautiful about FKTs specifically is that there's such a range, but there's also a self-reliance of having to know who you are deep down to be able to do it. And, you know, whether that's a route that's 30 miles, whether that's a route that's 350 or 2000 plus, I think realizing you belong there is really, really important. So that's what I'm hoping to continue, what I'm hoping to lead with my own route choices, with my own adventures. And truthfully, it really bothers me to look at the FKT website and see only male performances on so many routes. I want there to be women's and non-binary records there as well. Yeah, definitely. I think that that is a really great mission to have through like what you're what you're doing in your FKTs. And it's actually kind of like inspiring me to go back to my logbook and submit FKTs for all the technical mountains I did in Washington when I lived yes, there. Because I never did them as FKTs. I would just go out and run a Boulder Peak and then go home. And I wasn't doing it as an FKT, but I'm certain that it is, you know, for a women's time anyway, on so many things that I've done. And I never really thought about the fact that not seeing other women out there doing it led to feeling like people didn't belong. Cause like for me, like I belong in the mountains and like, I know that I belong in the mountains. And so to me, the fact that I was the only woman out there randomly running around at 8,000 feet by myself solo, like didn't seem weird. And like, if people gave me weird looks or seemed surprised, like it didn't phase me. So I never really thought about the ability to use that as a way to help others see that they're welcome in that space. So I think that is really cool. And I, I'm really actually inspired by like your message and your mission. I hope that you do submit those records. I, I've talked a lot to Jason Hardrath about his, I always say it wrong, boulders though, right? Boulders, Not yeah. Boulders. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's no woman's record. There's no woman who's completed in one season. And I'm actually moving up to Washington State next year. Life happens, things happen, but it's definitely on my radar. Yeah, Um, I do really hope you submit those records, though, because I think it's so inspiring to see. I I do think it feels a little bit exclusive where it's like, okay, why is there only a men's record? Is it because um, a woman just hasn't done it yet? Or this is something that's too spicy or too technical that a lot of women feel they don't have the skills to do? Yeah, it is something that I question and I wonder, like, why? You know, I think that two of my friends and I, I think, I mean, I don't know, maybe somebody else has done it. And I wonder sometimes if it's just women aren't logging it, aren't registering it. Because it's like, I think we're the only all women's team to do Olympus as a car to car in Washington state. And none of us submitted it to the FKT site. (laughs) But, you know, there's just things like that where it's just like interesting. And you wonder, is it because people aren't doing it or is it because they aren't reporting it? They aren't recording it. You know, it's like, you know. 
kind of a question of why or what, but yeah, I hope you go after the Bulger list. It's an amazing list. Like I did two thirds of it. It's pretty amazing. That's awesome. Well, I might be asking for any tips or tricks. <laughs> yeah, sure. To it. Yeah. It's been a while since I've climbed one because I left Washington state, but yeah, it's a fun list for sure. Yeah. I've done Rainier and then we've kind of messed around in a few of the other mountains, but I think Washington's got a I mean, you know far better than I do. It just seems to have this magical quality about it. It's oh, really absolutely. exciting. Yeah, it does. Washington is a very special place and the mountains are very special there. Is there anything else you'd like to share about, you know, your Mount Whitney FKT or FKTs in general? Honestly, could not have been better timing to talk to you because I really, I've thought about this so much and feel so passionately about again, like opening up these spaces. And I'm really thankful to get to share this message with other people. And hopefully it does inspire some other people who have been kind of like looking at it, but not sure if they want to commit, like message me, I will help talk you through it. I will help any way that I can connect you. And that's the other thing, of course, singularly, none of us have all the answers, but I think if we all build the community, then we can help each other out. And I think that's that's one of the best parts is when you connect with a community. Absolutely. What is the best way for people to reach out to you? Either email akamos13 at gmail.com or Instagram theory, T-H-E-O-R-Y underscore in underscore motion, M-O-T-I-O-N. My Englishy side coming out there. But <laughs> yeah, either one of those. Seriously, I if you're even thinking about it, I want to help. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Alyssa, for coming on the show. You can check out all of Alyssa's FKTs on the website, fastestknowntime.com, and follow her on Instagram at theory underscore in underscore motion. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, this is Heather on the FKT Podcast.